see what's on the other channel. Nah, switch it over. Yeah, leave that on. Part 1 Hey, somebody get up and change the channel! The generation of Americans referred to as boomers, often derisively nowadays, comprise just over 20% of the American population alive today. Born between 1946 and 1964, boomers grew up in a world where most families had just one TV set, and that TV set had a choice of three or four channels. The big three of ABC, CBS and NBC along with the obligatory local channels featuring wall-to-wall -wall car dealership commercials and small-town bigwigs and dignitaries pushing their faces in front of any camera within distance. For people born between 1946 and 1964, television was like cultural glue, bringing Americans together and ensuring that at least something could be held in common by everyone during a time of increasing social division. If your family sat down together in the evening to watch The Waltons or Little House on the Prairie, chances are that at least half of the families on your street had done the same. The early part of the 1970s was still poised on the cusp between the advent of home video recorders and computers, cable TV and arcade games. If you had shown a smartphone to a kid back then, it would have seemed like something from the set of Star Trek. Kids in, say... 1974, still lived very much in the physical, pre-digital world, playing baseball and basketball in fields, streets and driveways, roller skating and skateboarding, sticking quarters in pinball machines at the local supermarket, and riding bikes. Everywhere. Especially over badly engineered ramps trying to imitate evil Knievel. I won't explain, just look it up. Kids from more rural backgrounds went fishing, shot their BB guns at things, caught bugs, grasshoppers, lizards, toads, stuck them in jars. I don't know why. Everybody licked bomb pops and snow cones in summer, and it was still legal for kids to buy fireworks and to ride in the back of pickup trucks, even on the highway. When darkness or weather forced kids indoors, Entertainment was had in the form of card games or board games, building model cars and airplanes, listening to the radio or record player, or just watching TV. If nothing good was on the radio or TV, well, there was always a good half an hour of fun to be had, just annoying your brother or sister. Oh, and of course, magazines and books. Nature magazines, picture books, comic books. Or real books. For boys, real books meant titles like The Call of the Wild, Treasure Island, The Hardy Boys Mysteries, Last of the Mohicans. And in that much more gendered time, girls read things like Nancy Drew, 
Charlotte's Web or Little Women, unless they were tomboys, of course. Laura Ingalls Wilder's Little House series of books were the Harry Potter adventures of that time, enjoyed mostly by girls, but enjoying a level of crossover success with boys. This writer devoured them as a youngster, eagerly following the frontier adventures of the Ingalls family, from the woods of Wisconsin through Kansas, Minnesota and the Dakotas, until Journey's End in the Missouri Ozarks. The fact that Laura Ingalls Wilder spent her final 63 years not 10 miles from my own Missouri Ozark great-grandparents made the Ingalls Wilder family seem even more special. Kind of like having Elvis live in your hometown. A famous by osmosis sort of thing. So when it was announced that a TV series was to be based on these books, I actually counted the days until the premiere and remember sitting on the rug in front of the TV set one night in 1974 in eager anticipation. Excitement turned to confusion within minutes. Everything about the show seemed somehow... wrong. Where was the dark, bearded paw described in the books? Where was the quiet but leather-tough frontierswoman he called his wife? The show looked like a mashup of the daydreams of an unmarried Sunday school teacher with a marketing agency's toothpaste ad. All gingham and sunshine and sparkle-tooth smiles. Everyone was clean-shaven or scrubbed as shiny as a wax linoleum floor. But most of all, it seemed like every one of these frontiers people was so blue-eyed and Nordic-looking. Hell, they almost glowed like a visitation of angels. Even the horses and pigs probably had a bath before saying bedtime prayers in the barn. Fifty years on, it's unlikely that such a schmaltzy confection could be updated and reproduced. Like trying to remake Happy Days or The Brady Bunch, it wouldn't even find an audience. Except maybe on niche Christian cable channels. Hard to explain, but it seemed horrifying and wrong that the entire world would now in perpetuity, see Karen Grassel's and Michael Landon's faces whenever someone mentions Little House on the Prairie. Anyone of the boomer generation will understand this. Whenever a TV show or film was adapted from a beloved book, we would say to friends, Read the book first! We knew that our own imaginations could conjure up a world which spoke personally to us someone else's vision might ruin the world inside our head. Imagine if Peter Jackson had cast William Shatner as Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. In the pre-digital age, the distance between listeners and viewers and politicians, singers, film and TV stars was much greater, and in our naivety, we found it hard to separate actors from the characters they played. The house next door to us in 1976 had a Chevy van parked in the driveway with a badly rendered portrait of John Wayne painted on the back, with kerchief and cowboy hat. Underneath was hand-painted lettering that read, God bless John Wayne. But in our present world, with entire libraries in our pockets, and most celebrities maintaining a social media presence, singers and actors no longer seem like distant demigods. 
Young people today are also far more streetwise and aware of the various agendas being pushed by various media. They understand monetization and product placement before the age of 10. Sometimes it's fun to revisit 1970s pop culture with the power of the internet, to see how our gilded memories stack up against verifiable facts and details. After chancing on the fact that I share a distant Puritan-era great-grandparent with Laura Ingalls Wilder, like a million other Americans, I began rooting around her family tree. The fame of the Ingalls family meant that there was no shortage of biographical information available online, including vintage photographs. If something about Little House on the Prairie had seemed more than a bit off all those years ago, well, that's because it was. The TV show which premiered in 1974 was not just a case of poor casting. The TV show which premiered in 1974 was not just a sanitized portrait of an idealized past. The TV show which premiered in 1974 was a deliberate and willful act of historical and cultural vandalism, with the broken pieces reconstituted as political propaganda. Little House on the Prairie is a perfect microcosm, a template for showing how biographical and historical facts can be twisted, modified and manipulated by people with an agenda to the point of creating an alternative past for a fake national self-identity with fake socioeconomic history, fake political history, fake ethnic history. Good grief! Aren't you reading a bit much into things, I hear you say. Follow me on this brief podcast journey, and then you decide. Those of you too young to have seen Little House on the Prairie, stay with us. The template used in 1974 to rewrite American history is still being used today. I'm Brian Halpin. Welcome to the time before we were white. Part 2. Travelers in Both Time and Space Charles Philip Ingalls wore his beard long, like most men of his generation. He was a strong man, but not in the puffed-up way of boys who eat a lot, drink beer a lot, sit down a lot, and then go to the gym. Nah, he was strong in a wiry, hungry yard dog kind of way, also like many men of that era. By the time Charles Ingalls' grandfather had struck out from New Hampshire for western New York State in the years after the American Revolution, Ingalls' people had already been in New England for almost two centuries, seven or eight generations, and every one of those generations had lived close by violence and social tumult of one kind or another. Charles's great-grandfather, 
Jonathan Ingalls had marched into the vast northern woods on the border of Canada in 1777 to reinforce Fort Ticonderoga, which had recently been captured by fellow New Hampshireite Ethan Allen and his Green Mountain Boys. A roughneck gang, the Green Mountain Boys had been formed long before the Revolutionary War, which would make their name. These boys were actually a frontier vigilante militia before they were paid soldiers, engaged for years in a low-level land war between Anglo-American colonizers of New Hampshire and New York. Arson attacks on farmsteads, cattle rustling, beatings, intimidation, that sort of wholesome pioneer days kind of stuff. Charles' grandfather Samuel Ingalls spent his teenage years and early adulthood ducking between the USA and Canada before he and many other Americans from New England began the first great push into the Ohio and Illinois countries along the southern skirts of the Great Lakes, trying to grab some land ahead of the speculators from back east, suffering retaliatory Indian raids, launching revenge attacks. The killing and burning of indigenous camps, villages, and towns continue until a confederation of tribes from the old Northwest Territories banded together to inflict the first great historical defeat on the U.S. military near the Wabash River in Ohio in 1791. For every Miami, Potawatomi, Shawnee, or Lenape warrior who fell, at least 50 American colonizers and men-at-arms under Major General Arthur St. Clair were killed or wounded. But the martial ability of leaders like Little Turtle of the Miami and Blue Jacket of the Shawnee would not be enough to withstand the coming storm. The Battle of Fallen Timbers, so named because the battle was fought among trees recently felled by a violent tornado, spelled the end of the First Great War for the Ohio Valley. Following nearly 10 years of brutal skirmishing, hunger, and privations during the 1780s and 1790s, confederated tribes were forced to cede most of their homelands in the Ohio country to this new nation called the USA. Less than 20 years later, a sort of rematch would take place at Tippecanoe, Indiana, on one side, religious leader and prophet Tenskwatawa, brother of Shawnee leader Tecumseh, and on the other side, Americans under William Henry Harrison. Both Tecumseh and Harrison had been present as youths at the Battle of Fallen Timbers, but this time Tecumseh was away in the south trying to drum up support for a new pan-tribal confederation among the Choctaw and Muscogee. Harrison contrived various provocations and justifications for war before burning Prophetstown to the ground. Harrison went on to become the ninth president of the USA. The USA has always rewarded its empire builders. Tecumseh died shortly after, along with his dream of indigenous liberty. It was the relative calm in the aftermath of these wars which probably led Charles Ingalls' grandfather Samuel to move his family from New Hampshire to points farther west, where New York State meets the Great Lakes. Samuel's son Lansford Ingalls, father of Charles Ingalls, was actually born in Canada, but spent much of his own youth in this far western section of New York State. At the time, much of America was experiencing what historians call the Second Great Awakening, a time of wandering preachers and massive outdoor revivalist camp meetings. 
Huge numbers of common people had become consumed with a religious fervor bordering on mania. Western New York was a particular hotbed of this so-called Great Awakening, in which overtly theatrical public preachers would rail against the evils of an ever more secular post-enlightenment world. This was also the environment and place which gave rise to cult leaders like Joseph Smith, who would eventually lead his Latter-day Saints, or Mormons, westward. The Ingalls people themselves were Congregationalists, descended from the English Separatists who were among the earliest Europeans in Massachusetts. The Ingalls appear to have been thoroughly uninterested in the wave of evangelical wackiness sweeping western New York State. Perhaps the events unfolding around them contributed to their decision to strike out west. But a more likely explanation lies in the cheap federal lands which were being made available for purchase. Lansford Ingalls first tried his luck in 1840s Illinois country, before following members of his extended family around 100 miles northwards into the new state of Wisconsin during the 1850s. By 1861, Lansford Ingalls would be forced to start all over once again, having seen his first farmstead in Wisconsin sold at public auction after he was unable to clear his accrued debts. He upped sticks, moving over 230 miles farther to the northwest, and it is there that Laura Ingalls Wilder would set her first book, Little House in the Big Woods, Lansford Ingalls being the grandpa in that book, and his son Charles Ingalls being Laura's beloved paw. So Charles Paw Ingalls, born in western New York State in 1836, had by the age of 25 lived in multiple states and territories and travelled the guts of a thousand miles, mostly on foot. And like his father before him, the walking feet of Charles Ingalls would have a tendency to get itchy. Pa Ingalls would continue to pull his family from place to place and job to job, running in circles around the West and Midwest, chasing free or cheap land until well into his 40s. East Wisconsin to West Wisconsin, West Wisconsin to Osage Territory in Kansas, Osage Territory back to West Wisconsin, West Wisconsin to Minnesota, Minnesota to Iowa, Iowa to Dakota Territory. Like his father before him, Charles Ingalls also had a tendency to end up in debt. But unlike people of today who might labor for decades under debt, frontier-era America always held out a glimmer of hope for a fresh start. Every week, every month, brought news of more free land being opened up somewhere. American underclass settlers were not stupid. They knew exactly how free land was becoming available during the 1800s. Almost every family had a forefather who had fought and killed Indians somewhere for land during the preceding decades. Not in a classic circle the wagons, cowboys and Indians kind of scenario, but in a very real, 
militias and armies marching kind of way. The list of conflicts between Anglo-Americans and indigenous peoples east of the Mississippi River before the American Revolution is shocking enough. The Anglo-Powhatan Wars, the Pequot War, Metacomet's Rebellion, the Tuscarora War, Yamasee War, Dummer's War, Pontiac's War, Lord Dunmore's War. And in the years between the end of the Revolutionary War and the birth of Charles Ingalls, a window of just over 50 years, Americans would go on to fight the Creek people of Georgia in the Oconee War, they would fight Tecumseh's War, which we've just mentioned. They would fight the Peoria War, also in the Midwest. They would fight the First Creek War of Alabama and the Gulf Coast. The First Seminole War in Florida, Apache Wars in Texas, the Arikara War in North Dakota against the Arikawa and Sioux, the Winnebago War against the Ho-Chunk in Wisconsin, the Black Hawk War against the Sauk and their allies, the Second Seminole War, the Second Creek War, the Comanche Wars. The American frontier was bathed in blood. How many Americans today even know the names of these conflicts? Yet each one represents the snuffing out of thousands of years of autonomous culture and the extinguishing of language, art, and music an apocalypse for real communities and real people. By the time the Ingalls family and other colonizers were pushing into the Great Plains, no one was even bothering to pretend anymore that European and indigenous co-sharing of the American continent was possible. It is worth remarking that the most common justification for dispossessing the Osage and others of their lands was the idea that land should be controlled and owned by people who would farm and develop it. Passing through a land seasonally as hunters and gatherers was characterized as improper use of land. This is a point made by Charles and Caroline Ingalls to their daughter one evening, when after listening to her mother Caroline sing about an Indian maiden called Alpharetta, Laura wonders why all the Indians are heading west. Charles and Caroline's reply. Because that's what Indians do. Why do they do that, Ma? Laura asked. Why do they go west? They have to, Ma said. Why do they have to? The government makes them, Laura, said Paul. Now go to sleep. He played the fiddle softly for a while. Then Laura asked, Please, Pa, can I ask just one more question? May I, said Ma. Laura began again. Pa, please, may I? What is it, Pa asked. It was not polite for little girls to interrupt, but of course Pa could do it. Will the government make these Indians go west? Yes, Pa said. When white settlers come into a country, the Indians have to move on. The government is going to move these Indians further west, any time now. That's why we're here, Laura. White people are going to settle all this country, and we get the best pick of the land, because we get here first and take our pick. Now do you understand? Yes, Pa, Laura said. 
But, Pa, I thought this was Indian territory. Won't it make the Indians mad to have to... No more questions, Laura, Pa said firmly. Go to sleep. Charles Ingalls was no innocent fool. His euphemistic suggestion to Laura that the Indians just had to head west was, of course, window dressing for his children. Ingalls had already moved his family once into contested land in Wisconsin, and as a literate man, he also knew full well that the Indians didn't always simply move west with a tired shrug of resignation. Little Crow's uprising in Minnesota would have been a recent memory, and Ingalls would have also known how the U.S. government, in 1863, had performed public hangings of Santee Dakota resistance fighters not far from the Ingalls' old house in Wisconsin. A terrible event, which still represents the largest mass execution in USA history. But, as a neighbor of the Ingalls was willing to put it more bluntly, Treaties or no treaties, the land belongs to folks that'll farm it. That's only common sense and justice. Justice, justification, same root word. Such 19th century American views uncannily prefigure the views of 20th century Zionist colonizers and settlers in Palestine with their off-made claim that Palestine had been a land improperly used by its inhabitants and that only Zionists had been able to make the desert bloom. In her books, Laura Ingalls mentions her father getting news from a man in Washington. What she did not mention is that this man in Washington was most likely Charles Ingalls' politician cousin John James Ingalls, who it seems reasonable to guess was passing on information regarding the upcoming availability of various federal lands to homesteaders. Having a contact in Washington begins to seem even more likely when we ask how Charles Ingalls managed to avoid fighting during the Civil War, or why he was never named in a Civil War draft call, or why he and his extended family chose to move to remote Pepin, Wisconsin during the Civil War, into a region only recently annexed by the U.S. from the Metis of the Red River Valley. We know that Charles Ingalls' wife Caroline lost her brother Joseph Quiner at the Battle of Shiloh, Perhaps it was she who refused to risk losing her husband as well and begged him to avoid service at all costs. This is no attempt to make moral judgments. The hows and whys of who picks up a gun and who turns their back on war are myriad. The same goes for falling into debt. The American frontier was a dangerous, pitiless and ruthless place for dreamers, drifters and plain average honest people all of whom could find themselves beset on one side by violent ruffians and outlaws, and on the other by rapacious merchants, railway barons, corrupt politicians and land speculators. But perhaps far more heartbreaking, challenging and dead-inducing was the natural world of the American Midwest itself. People who had farmed in New England for two centuries, with its relatively predictable seasonal rhythms, had no folk traditions or know-how to prepare them for the land they were injuring. Wiry prairie grass resisted the plough. Things like locust plagues, droughts, blizzards and prairie fires were far beyond the expectations and understanding of men like Charles Ingalls. But still, even allowing for sheer bad luck, 
of which the Ingalls family experienced more than their fair share. The fact remains, even with his tip-offs and head starts, even with the advantages offered by cheaper free land, even with the advantages of education and literacy, Charles Ingalls was an abject failure at farming. In dispossessing the Osage and Sioux, people like Charles Ingalls had claimed that only farming people should find their rightful destiny in the American Midwest. One wonders if he reflected on the bitter irony of this in his later years. It is obvious that Charles Ingalls was a footloose dreamer, far more interested in the world over the next hill than in relentless, back-breaking, sedentary sod-busting. The dream, the idea of free and open spaces and rugged self-reliance in Osage and Lakota badlands and prairie lands was far more alluring than the brute reality. Missteps, calamities, wars, and natural disasters aside, the breathtaking speed of the Anglo-European conquest of North America, west of the Appalachian Range, seems almost impossible to grasp. The time between the Louisiana Purchase in 1803 and the crushing of the last resistance of Western Indian tribes at Wounded Knee in 1890 was one single human lifetime or about 87 years. By comparison, the European conquest of Indian lands east of the Appalachian Mountains, the time between the founding of Jamestown in 1607 and the final Indian removal of eastern tribes to reservations west of the Mississippi River in 1839, took three times as long. The lives of Charles Philip Ingalls, his daughter Laura Ingalls Wilder, and her daughter, Rose Wilder Lane, spanned the years from 1836 to 1968. Just a man, his daughter, and his daughter's daughter to go from the Trail of Tears to the assassination of JFK and the Vietnam War. Three lifetimes able to bridge Charles Darwin sailing on the HMS Beagle with Neil Armstrong on a rocket to the moon. And just six years after the death of Rose Wilder Lane in 1968, granddaughter of Charles Ingalls, the first episode of a TV show about the early life of her mother, Laura Ingalls Wilder, was aired in December of 1974, sandwiched neatly between the resignation of Richard Nixon in August of 74 and the evacuation of Saigon in April 1975. I want to say this to the television audience. I made my mistakes, but in all of my years of public life, I have never profited, never profited from public service. I've earned every cent. And in all of my years of public life, I have never obstructed justice. And I think, too, that I could say that in my years of public life, that I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. For those who did not live through those tumultuous years, it is scarcely possible to convey the widespread societal sense at the time of America's rapid fall from grace, as the shining city on a hill of yore was being rocked by metaphorical earthquakes. The Allied victory in World War II had created a generation of heroes, 
and the post-war economic boom had created a large white American middle class who enjoyed a widespread material prosperity never seen in world history. Brash self-confidence became a defining trait of white American culture, an archetype recognized internationally with equal parts admiration, jealousy, and disdain. You'll notice the repeated use of this white qualifier when speaking of post-war prosperity in the USA. This is because even as the economy and babies were booming, cracks were already appearing in America's shiny consumerist facade, with people of color, the disenfranchised, the disillusioned, the poor and excluded beginning to find their feet, inserting a crowbar into some of those cracks in the glistening white plasterwork of the city on a hill. The cheering which followed VE Day and putting a man on the moon were no longer enough to drown out the voices being raised ever louder against segregation laws and police violence, the voices calling for female empowerment and environmental protection, and the worldwide condemnation of America's domestic racism and American interference in Latin America, the Middle East and Southeast Asia. For years, the establishment had dismissed all such opposition variously as hysterical bra-burning females, work-shy wastrels, black criminals, beatniks, communists, and drug-addled Mexicans and hippies. But defeat in Vietnam and the Watergate scandal finally seemed to bring unquestioning faith in the American way crashing down, and a rupture occurred in American society which persists to the present day and is growing ever wider. Group A pointed to a broken society and said, let's build something different and better. Group B pointed to a broken society, blamed Group A for breaking it, and said, let's put it back the way it was. Group A said, but the way it was was, well, kind of shit. Group B said, no it wasn't. This is why popular culture and shows like Little House on the Prairie matter, and why they matter a lot. Humans tend to think in metaphors, symbols, and stories. It's probably part of our very biology, a sort of linguistic hardwiring. Try to speak continuously about your favorite subject for just three minutes without using a single simile or metaphor. It's virtually impossible. We make one thing stand for another thing. It's as if nothing new can really exist until placed into a metaphorical relation to something already familiar, already extant. Most humans take their sense of the past from various metaphors, symbols, and most of all, stories, not from academic history books. Stories, such as those we read our children at bedtime, are more than entertainment. They are shorthand for what we want to believe are larger truths. Truths about morality, truths about justice, truths about human nature. As parents, if our motives are pure, we hope that fairy tales and bedtime stories will teach unsophisticated minds about greed, loyalty, evil, courage, duplicity, love, all as preparation for an oftentimes harsh world. And we never outgrow our hunger for stories. Stories from family, stories from friends, stories from preachers and politicians, stories from storybooks, 
stories from the movies, stories from TV. When it comes to stories for grown-ups, the people most likely to selectively edit and embellish stories to harmonize with their grown-up attitudes and beliefs, and to conflate these customized stories with historical reality, tend to be the people also most likely to say, let's put things back the way they were, or let's make America great again. Hollywood films and TV shows are, after all, just elaborate campfire stories and bedtime stories for the visual age, usually minus the benevolent motives of parents towards their children. Which is not to say that screenwriters, directors, and producers are without their own motives, as we shall soon see. Part 3. The Storytellers So, we have four generations of storytellers providing the source material for this slice of Americana called Little House on the Prairie. Let's take a look at how these sources stand up to closer scrutiny. Generation 1. Charles Philip Ingalls. Born. 1836. This is Paul whose stories, quotes, and motivations we really should interpret with a pinch of wisdom and understanding of human nature. Most of his words, after all, come to us second or third hand, and it is abundantly clear that Laura Ingalls Wilder absolutely adored her father, and in her later years came to see him as an American iteration of the classical adventurer poet. She was never going to put bad words into her long-dead father's mouth. And from what we learn by parsing Laura's memories with anything we can glean from hard historical records, Charles Ingalls certainly doesn't come across as one of the worst people one might have met on the 19th century American frontier. But in the overall context of Manifest Destiny, not being one of the worst is a fairly low bar to clear. Charles Ingalls appears to have been a relatively tolerant, sensitive and literate man in a time and place of widespread violence, insensitivity, and illiteracy. And it was his literacy which gave him the option of swapping his off-grid farming dreams for normal and boring jobs like managing a railway office or running a hotel when things on the farmstead took a turn for the worse. And by a turn for the worse, we mean a family living on the edge of starvation at times. While there are references in the Little House books to food not always being plentiful, there is certainly no mention of Charles needing to ask for food assistance from county or territorial officials. Assistance which was granted, but only after he was forced to make a formal written declaration that he was wholly without means. In fairness to both Charles and Laura on this count, this probably isn't something he admitted to his family. Charles Ingalls did not end his days as a self-sufficient farmer on the land. 
He ended his days as a town dweller, and probably more than a bit disappointed that his wife had finally put her foot down, refusing outright to follow Charles on the next trail northwest into Oregon territory. In fairness to Charles Ingalls, he never claimed to have been utterly self-reliant, and the stories Charles Ingalls told himself, the stories he told his children, were not outright lies. Charles Ingalls was certainly a product of the attitudes of his time. For example, the taking part in blackface minstrel shows. But much of his bigotry took the form of a strange detachment, in which he acts as if his own decisions have no bearing on anyone other than his immediate family. Nothing suggests that he held any hatred of Indians or people of color. In fact, he often speaks favorably of the Indians. Even while directly benefiting from America's treatment of non-whites, he seems to have always been possessed with a certain world-weary resignation, perhaps believing that whatever personal stance he chose to take, the tide of history would roll on, with or without him. This is why no context is ever provided by his daughter Laura in her books when she mentions, quote, a mixed-blooded man, part native and part French, named Big Jerry, unquote. Big Jerry being a man with whom her father interacts in the book By the Shores of Silver Lake. We've already seen that Charles rarely offered his daughter any real and meaningful context for the truly hard questions, even when she was of a mind to ask. Modern listeners might not realize the extent to which upper-class and middle-class Victorian manners and norms for child-rearing had trickled down to the American underclasses, in spite of the populist cocky claims that Americans only did things the American way. This is why the Ingalls girls were expected to be seen but not heard, to use a saying still common in some quarters today. So people like the Métis of the Red River Valley near the Ingalls family in both Wisconsin and Minnesota remained simply characters, scenery, in an adult's recollection of a child's semi-dream world. No one is invited to ponder upon the origins, customs, or history of mixed French-Indian people who had been part of the Canada-USA borderlands for decades, generations before Canada or USA even existed, or to wonder why they like the indigenous tribes around them, were being shoved aside. Taken in the round, Charles Ingalls was neither a campaigner for social justice, nor was he a rabidly racist bigot. The lies, or omissions, of Charles Ingalls appear to have been the lies of a husband not wanting to lose the respect of his wife, and the lies of a father not wanting to fill the heads of his children with problems from the adult world. Charles' own words during Laura and Almanzo's visit to Dakota Territory before the Wilders' final move back east to Missouri shows a man only too aware of his own shortcomings. You've always stood by us from the time you was a little girl, he said. Your ma and I have never been able to do much for you girls as we'd like to. But there'll be a little something left when we're gone. Charles Ingalls clearly loved his family, and he loved music. He loved the relative freedom of wide-open places. But his vision always seemed to exceed his grasp. 
the real mythology, the gilding of events by careful omission, the actual hardcore storytelling, would really begin with his children and grandchildren. Generation 2 Laura Ingalls Wilder Born 1867 Laura Ingalls was tiny, barely five foot nothing in stockinged feet. Unlike her sister Mary, she did not inherit her father's blue eyes. Her eyes and hair were deep brown, like her mother's. We should remember that Laura did not even begin contemplating writing a memoir of her childhood days until about 15 years after her father died, and she didn't commit anything to paper until almost 30 years after he had passed away. The first thing Laura wrote was in fact not even a little house book. Her first work, other than writing local newspaper columns, was a straight-up childhood memoir told in the first person. By the time she finished this memoir, Pioneer Girl, the hair of Laura Ingalls Wilder was no longer a deep brown, and she was a somewhat prim and elderly woman of 62. Her childhood memoir was not even originally meant for publication, but was intended as a gift to her own 44-year-old daughter, recalling events which had occurred 50 and 60 years earlier. Pioneer Girl was essentially a memorial to the idea of family, especially her beloved Pa, and a memorial to the frontier era. It was written during the height of the Great Depression, when any time other than the 1930s must have seemed like the good old days, a rose-tinted and distant dream. With money a constant nagging concern, Laura did eventually decide to allow her memoir to be offered to publishers. It was roundly rejected. On the advice of her daughter Rose Wilder Lane, and with no small amount of assistance, many of the earliest events related in Pioneer Girl were edited and repurposed into a children's book, which would eventually be called Little House in the Big Woods, now told in the third person. It would become the first in a series of hugely successful books based on just the first two decades of Laura Ingalls' life. This was the magic juncture, where Laura's private memories became public stories, and stories were bent to a purpose. In this case, the purpose was to present an idealized portrait of fortitude and family during frontier days. But Laura's father, Charles Ingalls, had left Wisconsin for Osage Indian Territory before she was even three years old. This meant that Little House in the Big Woods and parts of the second installment, Little House on the Prairie, were actually a mosaic of family lore and later childhood memories inserted into a time and place which Laura could not possibly remember. And this is why her age in the earlier books was shifted to make her earliest childhood memories, seem more plausible. Out went infant mortality, the loss of baby Frederick Ingalls, quite possibly being a result of malnutrition or even unaffordable or unavailable medical care. 
Out went her father having to abandon his illegally squatted land in Osage country. This hasty reversal later blamed on government incompetence and misinformation. Out went her uncle's failed illegal gold prospecting camp on Lakota lands. Cryptic references to Tom fighting Indians while squatting in the Black Hills gets a mention in Lore's later writings, but as usual, the actual implications of this are left unsaid. Fighting Indians is a regular euphemism in American history used to describe gold and silver prospectors committing murder to protect their staked claim. So in the end, this episode becomes mostly about Uncle Tom's unfair treatment at the hands of more faceless federal officials. Also missing is the Ingalls family skipping town in the dead of night to escape debts, although it seems unlikely that Laura understood what was happening at the time. Neighboring children freezing to death in snowstorms or having leg amputations due to frostbite? Hmm, also no mention. There's definitely no sign of the drunken domestic violence witnessed while living in a hotel next to a saloon in Iowa. Violence not committed by your own family, it should be said. And obviously no mention of shootings, rapes, or attempted child molestation. There's also no mention in the Little House series of the neighboring Indians who are outraged and on the brink of violence when a local settler doctor digs up a mummified Indian baby from sacred ground and sends it to Chicago for study. The doctor was presumably remunerated for his anthropological specimen. Taking in borders for additional income in Dakota Territory is glossed over in order to maintain the impression of a self-sufficient farming life on the land. This latter point bears endless repeating. Land was an obsession for often unskilled and uneducated 19th century Americans. Land ownership represented independence, freedom, the chance of a full belly, self-esteem. To have a farm was to be somebody and to be one's own man. This is a drum Laura would beat her entire life, the freedom of the farmer, even though the Ingalls and Wilder households were never properly able to make ends meet from farming. This aim was made doubly difficult by Almanzo's partial physical disability caused by a bout of diphtheria. Jobs outside the home kept the farm in Missouri afloat, and real financial stability would only arrive very late in life and on the back of her riding success, not farming. The importance of maintaining this ideal, this self-image of independent landowning self-reliance, led Ingalls Wilder to constantly disguise and downplay her family's dependence on off-the-farm work in her stories. Gone is the harsh reality of being hired out by your family, aged only nine, to act as a servant to more well-off neighbors, obviously in a desperate bid to make ends meet. This episode becomes simply helping the family earn money for Mary's schooling. Being made to take waged work while still only 11 years old is of course never presented as child labor let alone as a sign of her father's inability to provide enough money for his family. Leaving home to work full-time by the age of 15 is just, well, the way things were back then. Laura Ingalls was courted at age 14 or 15 by a man 10 years her senior. 
not uncommon among the poorer underclasses of the time, but certainly unusual in so-called respectable circles. So Laura changed the age difference between herself and Almanzo in her writing. As Laura and her daughter Rose began to find common ground in their dislike of the federal government, Laura becomes more willing to insert completely fake episodes into her books, like the invented story of her young husband Almanzo having to lie about his age in order to receive a homestead grant. This fictional vignette exists solely as a vehicle for criticizing government and bureaucracy once again, even though the age law she mentions didn't even actually exist. Like so many people who advance from a hard scrabble background, Laura is obsessed with making sure that her readers know how clean her family always was, whether living in a dirt dugout in the side of a hill or in a homestead claim shanty. This is the normal dignified pride to be expected when a family is close-knit. It is painfully human to wish to portray our parents as competent people making the wisest possible decisions in any given situation. So in Laura's writing, the virtues of stoicism and self-reliance, with everything turning out alright in the end, are repeatedly emphasized. In reality, the family was forced more than once to accept defeat while homesteading, moving into town or hightailing it back east for work in order to keep food on the table. It is totally understandable that the harshest realities would be excised from a series of books intended for children, and it is also only human that a person would not open up their family to ridicule or belittlement due to their earlier poverty. Some contemporary commentators have taken Ingalls Wilder to task for supposedly racist tropes in her writing, but these accusations do not stand up to close reading, especially taking her age at the time of the events she describes into account. In all fairness to Laura Ingalls Wilder, she, more than any other member of her family, recognised the plight of Indigenous peoples and inserts numerous scenes into her stories to suggest an injustice which was beyond the ability of a child to change. Taken at face value, and without being aware of any of the background detail, the Little House books are just damn good children's stories. But Lore's daughter and ghost editor, Rose Wilder Lane, saw her mother's stories as potentially far more than cozy and rather gilded pioneer reminiscences for children. With some judicious editing, the Little House books could be made to reflect a certain ethos, especially Rose's more and more strident political ethos. Generation 3. Rose Wilder Lane. Born 1886. Rose Wilder was the only child of Laura Ingalls and Almanzo Wilder to survive infancy. The Little House books make clear that Laura had always self-identified as a willful, tomboyish and independent girl, and Rose, born in 1886 while Laura and Almanzo still lived in the Dakota Territory, seemed to inherit this independent streak, and then some. 
Almanzo Wilder enjoyed as little success at farming in the Dakotas as his father-in-law, Charles Ingalls, had. Rose's early childhood was marked by poverty, dressed in ragged clothes and ill-fed, teeth part blackened due to malnutrition. Laura and Almanzo would move back east to attempt a fresh start, relying on Almanzo's parents in Minnesota to help them regroup, before a brief spell in Florida, eventually purchasing a farm in southern Missouri shortly after one final stay back in Dakota Territory. Rose spent the rest of her childhood there in southern Missouri, before leaving age 17 to seek education and work in Kansas City. Five years later, she would move out west to San Francisco, where age 22 she would meet and marry Gillette Lane. Eight months after her wedding, she would suffer the stillbirth of a child, and apparently no longer able to conceive, a divorce would follow after a few short years. It is unclear whether this childlessness played a role in the breakup of the couple. Rose would never marry again. As an adult, she would shudder at the memory of her early childhood, often expressing annoyance with her mother's prim sense of propriety, which seemed like a poor mask for disguising the family's financial difficulties. Unlike her mother, Rose did enjoy the odd drink. Rose would travel across Europe in a Model T Ford with a female companion and be touched by the extreme poverty of post-World War I Albania. Poverty which must have reminded her of her own childhood. For a time, she even toyed with communism as a possible answer to questions of grinding poverty. By the time just before the Great Depression of the 1930s, Rose was living far from her mother in Missouri and had worked as a journalist in California since 1908. She had written for magazines such as Good Housekeeping and earned very good money for the time, penning yellow journalism for newspapers owned by the notorious William Randolph Hearst, partial inspiration for the character of Citizen Kane in Orson Welles' early Hollywood masterpiece. The good money dried up with the stock market crash of 1929. The sometimes fraught relationship between a daughter and mother can be seen in Rose's words written to a friend during the Great Depression years. I am too sick to work and haven't money enough to last two months and pay income tax. I want to keep going, but do not see quite how, and there is no alternative rather than justify my mother's 25-year dread of my coming back on her sick. I must kill myself. If she has to pay funeral costs, at least she will cut them to the bone, and I will not be here to endure her martyrdom and prolong it by living. When Rose first began helping her mother with the Pioneer Girl manuscript, she was still mostly acting as an editor, stripping out sections, fleshing out others, trying to create something more marketable. Put into the starkest terms, Rose and her mother and father were teetering on the brink of financial ruin. Rose hoped her experience and connections in the publishing world might allow her to leverage her mother's memories into a financial lifeline. Her instincts were good, 
and the portions of Pioneer Girls set in Wisconsin were excised and expanded, eventually being published and marketed as the children's book Little House in the Big Woods. There is an old axiom that says, rightly or wrongly, if you are not left-wing when you're young, you have no heart. If you're not right-wing when you're old, you have no brain. During the 1930s, while helping her mother, Rose seems to have taken this sentiment to heart and strapped a rocket to it. Like so many people who have experienced a level of success after poverty, Rose attributed every success in life solely to an individual's personal decision to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. Every failure, on the other hand, lay firmly at the door of someone or something else, especially big government. And as Wilder Lane continued to morph into one of the earliest proponents of libertarianism, she also began drawing upon her mother's source material, further reconfiguring the failures and hardships contained therein as the fault of anyone other than her parents and grandparents. Wilder Lane also began writing polemical tracts and books attacking the US government for its interference in the lives of hard-working individuals, attacking Roosevelt's New Deal, even exchanging correspondence with that fellow supporter of unrestrained individualism, Ayn Rand. Eventually, in other correspondence, Lane even expresses a wish for the assassination of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Charming. Rose would begin to repurpose her mother's other stories, poking here, pulling there, and shaving off a bit around the edges, until her mother's nostalgic reminiscences became reshaped as source scriptures for a new political ideology, spilling into Lane's own novels and political essays. Even while lauding her family's pioneer spirit, painting them as heroes and righteous individualists, thwarted at every turn by government, Lane also displays a curiously elitist, if clear-eyed, disdain for the social quality of her forebears. Quote, I have no illusions about the pioneers. In general, they were troublemakers of the lower classes, and Europe was glad to be rid of them. They brought no great amount of intelligence or culture. Their principal desire was to do as they pleased. Yet Americans today are the kindest people on earth. Only Americans pour wealth over the world, relieving suffering in such distant places as Armenia and Japan. Such are a few of the human values that grew from individualism while individualism was creating this nation. Unquote. The foregoing was taken from Credo from the Saturday Evening Post in 1936, reprinted later under the title Give Me Liberty. This is Lane at her most blinkered, claiming that only pioneer spirit and American exceptionalism minus government can make philanthropists out of the roughest people. 
The generosity of many Americans is claimed to flow solely from the wealth which can accrue through unregulated individualism. It never seems to occur to Rose Wilder Lane that in addition to individualism and hard work, much American wealth was also accrued through slave labor and land and resource grabbing. Note that the land and resource grabbing was much facilitated by a central government with a powerful, taxpayer-funded military. Apparently, Lane had never heard of the impoverished Choctaw, who, upon hearing of the great hunger in Ireland in 1845, had sent virtually every spare penny they had to help alleviate Irish suffering, not even 10 years after the USA had annexed Choctaw homelands and force-marched them to Oklahoma. Lane used every opportunity to insist that the Preemption Act of 26 June 1874 and other similar land acts, which had allowed her grandfather to receive 172 acres on the banks of Plum Creek in Redwood County, Minnesota, and later homestead grants in Dakota Territory, were not, in fact, free land, disingenuously claiming that the hardships involved in attempting to wrest a living from free land meant that it wasn't actually for free. A bit like stealing diamonds from a jeweler and then claiming it wasn't stealing because you spend ages making a necklace out of them. Perhaps Lane also chose to remain uninformed about how the federal government allocated relief funds for seed stock in the aftermath of the terrible locust plague which wiped out her grandfather's crops in 1870s Minnesota. Lane certainly preferred to ignore how her parents benefited from federal farm loans taken out through the Farm Credit Administration, created as part of Roosevelt's 1933 Farm Credit Act, or indeed how her own income was supplemented by money earned writing for New Deal agencies such as the Works Progress Administration. In later life, Lane would befriend a young man named Roger McBride, who was over four decades her junior. And where Rose had found a way to blame government for every failure in her family's history, Roger McBride would positively jump the shark. Generation 4 Roger McBride, born 1929. Lawyer, literary agent, libertarian political disciple of Rose Wilder Lane, and co-producer of the Little House on the Prairie TV show. In the late 1960s, McBride was the named inheritor of Lane's estate, including much of the Little House intellectual property and copyright. It should be noted that he went against the express wishes of Rose's deceased mother, Laura Ingalls Wilder, wrestling full control of the Little House estate via the courts. McBride was 1976 Libertarian nominee for president, campaigning on a platform to abolish the U.S. Postal Service and Federal Reserve, among many other things, and helped found the Republican Liberty Caucus, still part of the GOP today. McBride clearly 
blatantly turned Little House on the Prairie into a virtual battleground on which to stage a private ideological war. The entire fundament upon which libertarian principles rest is the premise that everything good begins with the individual and that any government part in the lives of individuals is an encroachment upon or outright theft of personal agency, personal liberty, and indeed personal earnings. Amusingly, libertarianism allows for government expenditure on a collective military, presumably because only a collective effort can keep the world safe for individualism? For such a philosophy to have any credibility, examples of such a system succeeding in action and example are required. And if a close-knit nuclear family in a frontier setting with minimal bureaucracy, a good work ethic and a decent skill set cannot survive through rugged individualism, then who can? If the Ingalls family were seen to fail with all of their advantages, including access to cheap or free land and resources, then the libertarian philosophy itself might be seen as a failed ideology. This is not entirely unlike the way many Christian fundamentalists refuse to entertain evolutionary theory, because to do so might create a domino effect in their wider belief system. So to prop up his vision of how the West was won, and his belief in who actually won it, and to generally support his faulty and facile ideology, McBride and his screenwriters chose to play fast and loose with the Ingalls story, and even more fast and loose with wider historical accuracy. To wit, female family members were made to look largely Nordic in appearance. We'll get to this at the end of this podcast. The Ingalls family had received life-saving treatment from an African-American doctor named George A. Tan, who was working among the Osage Indians on land the Ingalls were squatting. This is mentioned in Chapter 15 of Little House on the Prairie, but no sign of it in the television series. So this long-running series, with over 200 episodes, oddly finds no place for one of the most traumatic events in the Ingalls biography, the entire family's near demise from malaria. The show makes zero mention that some events took place on illegally squatted land. Zero mention of federal funds which were used to remove Indians to make way for the homesteaders. Zero mention of federal disaster assistance. No sign of Osage Indians packing their belongings before their forced removal. Only fictional episodes in which Pa helps indigenous people in a paternalistic, white man's burden kind of way. Of course there's zero mention of Pa Ingalls being forced to beg food for his family, and receiving it from the territorial budget. And when the source material makes clear that the Ingalls have suffered a major setback, McBride, like his mentor Rose Wilder Lane, ensures the blame is always placed squarely elsewhere, preferably upon folks back in Washington. This is the same 
advanced by current public figures like businessman, writer and politician J.D. Vance in his odious so-called memoir, Hillbilly Elegy, in which he throws his struggling community under a bus while construing a tale of his own superior bootstrap fortitude. His entire so-called bootstrapping out of his socioeconomic background hinges upon an escape route called the U.S. Marine Corps. It never once seems to occur to Mr. Vance to ask who actually funds the U.S. military. Without taxpayers and the USA's huge military expenditure, would he have located some bootstraps elsewhere? And what if a person disagrees with U.S. militarism? Does Vance advocate for alternative federally funded bootstraps? None of the foregoing is intended as an apologia for big government. No one likes bureaucracy and interference in their daily affairs. But there is an almighty strain of wanting to have one's cake and eat it too running through all of this. The Ingalls and Wilder people had many successes and many failures, just like most of us. Their failures were a combination of their own poor or ill-informed decisions, opportunistic risk-taking, gullibility, for example, believing railway company and land speculator hype, bad weather, and sheer bad luck. Successes came from a combination of tenacity, hard work, periodic economic assistance, family cohesion, and good luck. After this look at the ways in which the Ingalls story has been rejigged down through the decades, it becomes plain as day that the TV version of the Ingalls Wilder story is a soft-focused, artificially-flavored sugar confection which evolved over many years. Not organically, but due to a wide range of personal motivations. Charles Ingalls not wanting to lose face. Laura Ingalls wanting to honor her family while making some money. This caused her to hide much of the reality of what was essentially a dirt poor and often rough upbringing. Her reinvention of this upbringing also gave her an opportunity to wag a somewhat superior and ungracious elderly finger at modern crybabies who didn't have things as hard as we did. This is otherwise known as the we walked eight miles to school barefoot in a snowstorm back in our day effect. Rose Wilder Lane's angle was all about wanting to leverage her mother's memories into money and where possible to change two generations of family history from a story of impoverishment beset with failures into something heroic to match her post-depression era political belief system. And of course, Roger McBride who wanted to make even more money, and as a libertarian ideologue and political candidate, chose to use his rights to the Ingalls estate to create highly lucrative libertarian propaganda in the form of a primetime TV show. There becomes less and less to admire about each successive storyteller as the generations become more and more distant from real, actual historical events. Simple family memories are carefully cropped and filtered to create stories 
the stories are then repeated and tailored by public retelling, the tailored legends become accepted as facts, and these fake facts are eventually cut up into pieces of propaganda and sold, literally sold, as the story of our nation in between commercial breaks. Unfortunately for the health of American culture, it is this faux historical end product which tends to resonate and settle in the American psyche. It is the TV story of the Ingalls family which remains, with white doctors in place of black ones, with Indians just passing through rather than being publicly executed or moved on. It is the TV story which remains after the omissions and lies, a TV story of children's storybook simplicity offering a shiny, happy portrait of good Christian neighborliness and self-reliance. Always the self-reliance. Worst of all, it is the world contained in this TV story which remains for some people to point at when they say they want America to be great again. Part 4. Pray or Die So as we draw toward the tail end of this episode, listeners might have spotted a couple of noteworthy omissions. Where the heck is the maternal side of Laura Ingalls Wilder's family? And where is the unusual ethnic angle this episode? There must be something coming down the line after making mention of just how white the cast of Little House on the Prairie looked. Coming from Puritan New England ancestors, the Ingalls family were surely pretty much as white as white gets. Uh, yeah. The before we were white bit. Even Puritan New England states, Maine, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, Vermont, New York, Connecticut, Delaware, were not as uniformly white as most people imagine. At the time of Charles Ingalls' third great-grandfather's move from Puritan Massachusetts to colonial New Hampshire, there were scarcely 9,000 people in that entire state. But even with such a small population, the New Hampshire Assembly felt compelled as early as 1714 to pass an act. Get this. An act to prevent disorders in the night. Quote, Whereas great disorders, insolencies, and burglaries are oft-times raised and committed in the night-time by Indian, Negro, and mulatto servants and slaves to the disquiet and hurt of Her Majesty's good subjects. No Indian, Negro, or mulatto servant or slave may presume to be absent from the families where they respectively belong or to be found abroad in the night-time after nine o'clock, unless it be upon errand for their respective masters or owners. Unquote. 
notice the need for legislators to explicitly mention Indian and mulatto servants and slaves. This is because before the yoke of slavery was placed explicitly upon the shoulders of Africans, the populations of Canada and New England were ethnically fluid, with no modern-style U.S.-Canadian border, let alone immigration controls. New Hampshire was frontier land, with its northern reaches inhabited and contested by settlers claiming allegiance to both England and France, alongside various Abenaki tribes fighting during this European disruption to hold both Europeans and the encroaching Iroquois at arm's length. Listeners should realise that the very term mulatto did not mean what most people take it to mean today, someone half black and half white, because slavery demanded that one's condition of freedom or servitude be based on race it became necessary to create an arbitrary line dividing people into legally binding categories. This was easy in the very, very earliest days because people were on the whole quite obviously from either Africa, Europe or America. The almost immediate intermixing of these groups during the 1600s had soon created an endless array of brown people who for the time being were lumped together under the category of Mulatto. Do not be tempted, like so many anthropologists, to refer to biracial or triracial populations. The American continent by the 1700s was also host to innumerable other brown people, including Portuguese, Malagasy, Jewish, South Asian Indian, and Romani peoples. People from such backgrounds were also likely to be lumped into the mulatto category. Before we get to Caroline Quiner, it should be pointed out that even the whiter-than-white Ingalls and Wilder families have origins murkier than at first glance. For example, the name of Laura Ingalls' own husband, Almanzo Wilder, begs for investigation. Is Almanzo named after a New York school teacher nicknamed Menzo? Why does Almanzo tell Laura he is named for someone with the Arabic name Almansur? Why on earth is there a Melungeon man named Nelson Almanson Wilder living in Kansas near the Ingalls family years before Laura would meet her similarly named future spouse in Dakota Territory? Is Almanson a corruption of some obscure Scottish or Scandinavian surname? Why does Almanzo's maternal grandfather have brothers with names like Oreda? While the progenitor of the Ingalls surname in the USA can be traced to Skirbeck, near the original Boston in the east of England, it is important to remember that all of us are a mixture of all of our great-grandparents, We do not take our ethnicity only from the person who supplied our family name. When we investigate all of Charles Ingalls' forebears, a much more complex picture emerges. Ancestral surnames include Brown, Locke, Delano, Worthen, Blood, Hall, Colby, Hibbard, Barry, Warren, Jeunesse, among many others. The sharp-eyed will notice the Delano name, from the Wallonian de Lanois family who would intermarry with the Roosevelts and whose children would include Franklin Delano Roosevelt, 32nd president of the USA. Amusingly, 
both Laura Ingalls and her rabidly anti-FDR daughter Rose seem to have been unaware that the architect of their hated New Deal was also a distant cousin. The Locke and Jeunesse families are particularly interesting as Charles Ingalls' earliest known Locke ancestor seems to have lived on the margins of Puritan society before eventually being killed by Indians in New Hampshire in 1696. Members of the Jeunesse family were likewise somehow at odds with Puritan authorities, to the extent of being forbidden to speak at public meetings. This might simply have been a case of non-Puritans refusing to play ball with strict Puritan norms. Or maybe these families were just a bit rough and lawless. But when we learn that claimed descendants of John Locke are carriers of the JM172 male DNA haplotype, another possibility emerges. While the Locke surname is closely associated with English Romany gypsy families, the J haplogroup is associated with North African, Middle Eastern, and Iranian population groups. And while this haplotype does occur among the Romani, it is especially common amongst Jewish communities. It is worth remembering at this point that Charles Ingalls was also descended from Richard Warren, one of the so-called strangers on the Mayflower, who also carried a haplotype uncommon among Northern European populations, but very commonly associated with Mediterranean peoples, including the Sephardic Jews of Iberia, many of whom were living in exile in the Netherlands of the 16th century alongside English separatists. See Before We Were White, Episode 4, for details on this subject. Of course, just like surnames, male DNA haplogroups and female DNA haplogroups are not in any way signifiers of our full ethnic background. A black person and a white person in America might share the same male or female DNA haplotype, or the same surname, if you will and may in fact also share a single 8th great-grandparent out of the 1,024 8th great-grandparents we all have. And yet, they will still only be very, very distant family in any real sense. So while these haplotypes can tell us almost nothing about the current overall ethnic makeup of any individual, they can clearly indicate a small bit of information about one single ancestor out of many, because haplotypes do act similar to surnames, in that they get passed down through the generations. Of course, even the rarest haplotypes can appear almost anywhere in the world. Humans get around the place. Typical Norse DNA types pop up in Turkey. DNA types typical of American Indians show up in Finland and even England. But there are historical reasons for those things. As regards a colonial American context, rare haplotypes are a clue worth investigating, especially if we find these haplotypes clustered and repeated again and again among certain communities and population groups in unexpected places. We'll address this subject in greater detail in future episodes. At any rate... Some of John Locke's children would go on to be local church deacons, so if his ethnic background was something other than white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, 
Such a self-identity doesn't seem to have outlived the eventual necessity of just fitting in. But whatever their ethnicity, those very first Locke, Warren, and Jeunesse people still lived in a world of French voyageurs and English trappers and traders who lived on the fringes of their core ethnic communities, with wives and consorts often drawn from indigenous communities. Among such people, the lines between slave, wife, concubine, and consort were often much blurred. Which brings us finally to Caroline Quiner and her visceral fear of, and dislike of, Indians. A careful reading of Pioneer Girl and the Little House books shows that Ma Ingalls was almost obsessed with keeping her girls from the sun, lest they become too brown like Indians. I declare, Ma said, if you girls aren't getting to look like Indians, can I never teach you to keep your sunbonnets on? This message was reinforced by Laura's blind sister Mary sometime later. Remember, Laura, Ma says if you don't keep your sunbonnet on, you'll be as brown as an Indian. This message continued to travel down to the younger siblings, with little Grace Ingalls even raising a laugh on Laura's wedding day by repeating Caroline's mantra regarding the importance of sunbonnets in preserving whiteness. But Caroline Ingalls herself was far, far from the dishwater blonde, straight-haired, blue-eyed Ma Ingalls of the TV show, as were two of her daughters, as were Caroline's sisters Eliza and Lottie, and her own mother Charlotte. Like so many American families with a complex ethnic history, the Ingalls children displayed a variety of physical traits. Some blue-eyed, some brown-eyed, some blonde-haired, some brown-haired, some with lighter, some with darker complexions. And while old photographs are notoriously difficult to read and interpret, especially those from the age before color photography, any casual perusal of Ingalls' family photos reveals a striking dissimilarity to the cast of the 1970s TV show. Sometimes in the USA, it is difficult to separate overt racism from unconscious racism. A generous reading of the choice of casting would say that since most Americans have been taught to picture the pioneers of the frontier as people of white European descent, it's only natural that the casting director would select such very white folks to play pioneer characters. A less generous assessment would ask why a particularly Nordic-looking cast was selected when the source material itself clearly says otherwise, and when the same family photos seen by this podcaster were obviously available to writers, researchers, and producers of the TV show. Feel free to view the slideshow we've produced to accompany this episode on the Before We Were White website and social media pages. Caroline Quiner's genealogy is much harder to read than that of her husband. Her maiden name can be traced no earlier than the late 1600s or even early 1700s to a poorly documented fisherman in Massachusetts. Without modern spelling conventions, it's difficult to even know the correct origin of the surname Quiner. While the name is not unheard of in England and Scotland, 
it is vanishingly rare in both places, and does not, to this writer's knowledge, appear in any of the Puritan Great Migration records. Take your pick. Quiner, Quainer, Quinor, Quinal, Cunier, Cunier. We know her great-grandfather, William Quiner, was a humble chimney sweep and a drummer during the Revolutionary War, and that he was not greatly admired by at least one son-in-law, while other paternal grandparents enjoyed a degree of prosperity, operating tanneries and other businesses typical for the time. Caroline's father, Henry Quiner, who brought his family through the Ohio Valley from Connecticut to Wisconsin during the 1830s, was drowned in 1845 on Lake Michigan when the schooner he was aboard capsized. He was only 38 years old and Caroline was scarcely four years old. The fatherless Quiner family was left momentarily destitute and might not have survived the coming winter but for the generosity of local Indians who shared food with them, a fact which makes Caroline's later attitudes toward Indians seem ungracious in the extreme. The maternal side of Caroline Quiner's family, the Tucker, Morris and Robbins families, is even hazier, even including some Brock and Goings ancestors, two surnames which run like a thread through the later multi-ethnic history of Appalachia. As for documenting the origins of various female spouses, the trail just peters out. This is not even remotely unusual or surprising for the time, and it bears repeating that many wives and consorts in colonial and frontier times were drawn from indigenous communities, or indeed from the slave population. Caroline Quiner's Tucker ancestors were from Bristol County, Massachusetts, one of the heartlands of the Wampanoag people, a loose name given to various tribes and bands of Massachusetts and Rhode Island. For our purposes here, it is important to remember that not all Wampanoag people had joined in Metacomet's rebellion against the Puritan settlers in 1675, a war which would essentially destroy the Wampanoag as a political force in New England. A Puritan missionary named John Eliot had been attempting since 1650 to get Wampanoag converts to settle in what were called praying towns, hoping through shared religious practice to slowly move indigenous communities toward European religious and cultural norms. It is believed that war and disease may have driven many of these Wampanoag people to seek an accommodation with the Puritans, with Wampanoag women in particular being open and susceptible to Christian overtures. Estimates of the number of Wampanoag people remaining in this section of Massachusetts throughout the 1600s and 1700s vary between 300 to 3,000. This demographic fluctuation almost certainly has to do with at least two things. One, the fact that many Wampanoag were leaving the region to live near other Algonquin tribes. And two, the perceived level of Wampanoag cultural assimilation and intermarriage with other ethnic groups, including the English. In other words, being counted as an Indian depended on whether one lived in an Indian town, a praying town, or an English town, whether one was a practicing Christian, whether one had married white, and whether one was considered full-blood, 
half-breed, mulatto, or mixed breed, to use the parlance of the time. Ancestors of Caroline Quiner's son-in-law, Almanzo Wilder, were in this exact same part of Massachusetts during the late 1600s. One of Almanzo's great-uncles, an innkeeper and local militia member named Nathaniel Wilder, was in fact given a reprieve from public execution by hanging after accompanying three other men who were involved in the brutal shooting and hatchet murders of a number of defenceless Wampanoag women and children, including a nursing baby. If we can set our horror aside, it is interesting that the murder victims were Christian praying Indians, the wives and children of Wampanoag militiamen who worked in cooperation alongside and often among European townspeople. This distinction between praying Indians and savages is why the Puritan justice system sometimes, but not often, found in favour of Indians. These Wampanoag militiamen who lost their loved ones were known to the Puritans by their European names. In this case, Andrew Pittine and Thomas Spine. Nathaniel Wilder was later shot dead by non-Christianized Indians outside the gate of his garrison in late summer 1704. The attackers also killed all of his livestock, burnt down his barn and hay stores, and abducted four of his sons, who ranged in age from 10 to 27. All of the foregoing is meant to illustrate the complex interactions between colonizers and local indigenous people, which could veer from intermarriage to genocidal violence. War captives might be killed or enslaved. They might be ransomed for money or exchanged for other prisoners. They might be rescued by their original community. But very often, they were just assimilated adding to the future pool of brown, old-mix Americans. Many people in colonial times with English names were, in fact, not English. This is so important to understanding early American history. I'm going to say it again. Many people in colonial times with English names were, in fact, not English. A brief trawl through the early records of Natick, Massachusetts, shows Indian families bearing English surnames like Abraham, Abram, Brand, Brooks, Ephraim, Feggins, Francis, George, Henry, Hyde, Lawrence, Pease, Robbins, Robinson, Thomas, Trey, Walker, and Weiser. This could all turn into some very dry and tedious genealogical blah blah blah, so we'll just cut to the chase. There are spin-offs from the Little House books being published for children today about Caroline Quiner's purportedly Scottish great-grandmother Martha Morse, with cheesy faux Scottish titles like Here in the Bonnie Glen or Beyond the Heather Hills. Insert your own Scottish Shrek accent where appropriate. The Laura Ingalls Wilder estate are the party who asked the HarperCollins Publishing House to commission a series of books about the 
Scottish childhood of Laura's great-grandmother, Martha Morris. But just one problem here. The Scottish origins of Martha Morris are completely fabricated. Martha Morris was, in fact, not the daughter of a Scottish laird. Martha Morris was, in fact, not even from Scotland. Nor were her parents before her, nor the generation before that. But in America, the clans and bagpipes and tartan kilts dollar is obviously a big dollar. But could money really be the only reason behind such nonsense? Maybe not. The author of these fables is a homeschooling mother working under the pen name Melissa Wiley, who also happens to be a contributor to the Geek Mom blog published on Wired.com. Wired.com is the partial brainchild of Louis Rossetto, co-founder of the old Wired magazine. Mr. Rossetto also penned a piece published in 1971 entitled, wait, Libertarianism, the New Right Credo. It's almost as if there's a loose libertarian ecosystem in which imaginary history publishing thrives in symbiosis with sympathetic online media outlets, a sort of ideological synergy. As if things couldn't get any sillier, some of these early not-Scottish Morses married Lawrences, another colonial Massachusetts family who also have a demonstrably bogus genealogy still being widely circulated online. There was quite a market during the 1800s for genealogies tracing sundry old mixed American families to noble ancestors in the old country. These bogus genealogies written by charlatans such as the Englishman Horatio Summerby can appear in very legit-sounding old publications such as the New England Historical and Genealogical Register. We'll say it one last time. Many spouses, consorts, concubines of early Europeans in America were in fact non-European. Slaves and free people of color of African background took Indian partners, both slave and free. Crispus Attucks, the first man killed in the so-called Boston Massacre of 1770, was of mixed African Massachusetts Indian ancestry. Of course, colonial-era slaveholders had children by slaves of all backgrounds. As we can see, black and white do not even begin to cover it. Of course, many people of unexpectedly dark complexion arrived in New England just like most other colonizers did during the 1600s from the British Isles. This is where we might mention the 1609 Scottish Act against the Egyptians, which had made it lawful to detain and execute Romany gypsies solely on the basis of their ethnicity. But that really is a story for another episode. 
we needn't attempt to put too fine a point on it here. After all, such forgotten aspects of American history and ethnicity are the very reason this podcast exists, and we will tease out some threads over time. Only extensive research might eventually reveal whether the genealogical dead ends in Caroline Quiner's past represent some of the people from the time before we were white. But speaking solely from personal experience and years of digging through records representing multi-ethnic America, the attitude of Caroline Quiner toward brownness and Indians in general betrays more than a hint of the subliminal self-loathing and denial of those who have chosen to or been forced to pass for white and then later wish to scrub away any residual sign of an ethnicity they chose to forsake and forget in order to get through and get by. And once we erase part of our very selfhood from our stories, from history, we make room for someone else to insert a made-up story in the place we once stood. A story of sunbonnets and bootstraps. This episode of Before We Were White was written and produced by me, Brian Halpin, with theme music by Dave McLaughlin and Ray Cohen. The additional music by McTira. If you'd like to hear more podcasts, please consider supporting us at our Patreon page or at our website, beforewewerewhite.com. Thank you. <laughs>